Thank you, and good evening to everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, and particularly to see one of uh, our volunteers in the audience tonight. So I shall try and fill you in on some of the details of your results. So um, in the spring of 2007, we put eight doctors and about onto the summit of Everest and took about 200 of the general public to Everest Base Camp to carry out some research. I was one of the research leads on the expedition and also the expedition medical officer. And uh, in my spare time, I'm also uh, a critical care physician, uh, currently working in Southampton. Also, I do research at UCL. And what I'd like to do over the next half an hour or so is explain to you why it is we went to Everest, what we hope to learn, and present some of the early data uh, from the expedition. As I think will become clear, it was actually a massive project, and we are still in the early days of analysis. So I certainly don't have the answers to everything so far, but I will be able to, I hope, give you a feel for the extent of the research we carried out and some early tidbits of data. Just to start with, I'm just going to show a very short video clip. This was taken on the summit ridge, just to give you some sort of idea of the degree of impairment in function when you're at this sort of altitude. This is from a head cam a Sherpa's wearing. If you listen particularly, you can hear his respiratory rate, his breathing rate's going at about 60 or 70 breaths a minute. This guy, Nigel, is an accomplished marathon runner at sea level, and he's not putting that on. <laughs> okay, I'll stop that there. It's the summit there. So, as I mentioned, I'm a critical care physician, and in fact, the core investigator group from Extreme Everest were all critical care physicians. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with critical care, essentially it's that area of the hospital that, that looks after patients who are very sick, whatever the underlying cause. So it's quite a general area within um, now very specialised hospital-based medicine. So if you've been run over by a bus or you've just had major surgery or you've had a heart attack, you'll end up with us in critical care. About 20% of the UK population will in their lifetime uh, spend some time in a critical care unit and unfortunately the mortality in our patients is still up to about 25%. Hypoxia, which is the word we use for low oxygen levels in the tissues, is pretty much a universal problem with our patients. And interestingly, what we find is that some patients tolerate hypoxia and quite severe hypoxia, so low oxygen levels quite well, whilst others really don't tolerate it at all well and rapidly deteriorate, and unfortunately we tend, we tend to lose those patients. So we're very interested in getting to the bottom of what it is that makes a patient a good adapter to hypoxia. What characteristics of a patient make them able to survive a very severe insult, say a very severe pneumonia where their lungs aren't working, to be able to withstand this and actually get, come out the other side? So why don't we just look at our patients in intensive care, you say? Well, the, one of the problems, there are several problems with doing critical care research on patients. First of all, <clears throat> as you can see, as in most of our patients, this gentleman's on a ventilator which makes it rather difficult to ask them if they want to take part in the research. <laughs> so from an ethical point of view, it can be a bit tricky. Generally these days, unlike 20 or 30 years ago when you're allowed to experiment on anybody without asking first, um, it's sometimes very difficult to get consent for doing research. Secondly, our critical care units on the whole are relatively small. Most non-teaching hospitals will have in the region of 8 to 10 beds. In a teaching hospital, the larger units in the UK may be up to 40 beds. But within those 40 beds, unfortunately the patients don't come in pairs like this. As I said to you, whatever your underlying illness, if you're very severely ill, you're, you're ending up with this. So it's very difficult sometimes to tease out what's being caused by the low oxygen levels, what's being caused by the underlying meningitis or pneumonia or heart attack. And so we chose to take a slightly different approach, which is a complementary approach clearly to, to research looking at patients, and that is to look at healthy, fit individuals who choose to expose themselves to low levels of oxygen, and then to try and identify amongst this group of individuals who does well and why it is that they do well? Because at the moment, we really don't know the answer to that. If you come to me, I'm an I'm a expedition doctor, I do a lot of altitude trips and say, I want to go to Kilimanjaro next month, how am I going to do? All I can really respond is, well, have you been before to altitude and how did you do last time? Because as, we sta as I stand here today, I can't tell you what makes you a good or poor performer at altitude. I can give you a long list of things which don't matter, and we'll cover some of those later, 
But the key factors that make you a good adapter to low oxygen levels, I'm not, we still don't know today. So this all sounds like a great wheeze so that you can go off to altitude and have fun climbing mountains, everyone always says to me next. So is there actually any evidence that this sort of approach can be of benefit or provide some useful information? So this is some work from Hugh Montgomery, who's one of my colleagues at UCL. Don't worry too much about the detail, but there's a gene called the ACE gene. And essentially, you all have two copies of this gene. You may have an I and an I, an I and a D, or a D and a D. And in the normal population, this is the distribution you'd expect to see. So about 25% of us have II, 25% of us have DD, and about 50% of us have one of each. If you look at elite high-altitude mountaineers, and these are defined as guys who manage to go above 7,000 metres repeatedly without oxygen, as you can see, there's a huge overrepresentation of the I allele, which I thought was very interesting. This looked like it was some sort of beneficial effect from being an I as opposed to a D, because not very many DDs managed to be elite mountaineers. So then we went back and looked at this condition called ARDS. Again, don't worry too much about the detail, but it's probably the archetypal hypoxic disease in intensive care. Your lungs essentially stop working. They become very stiff and very difficult to get any oxygen across and has quite a high mortality. This is the percentage of patients that die with this condition. Okay? And if you look here, if you're a DD, the DD are the ones that did very badly at altitude. About 50 to six, between 50 and 60% of you are dying with this condition. However, if you're an II, only about 10% of you are dying, which is hugely statistically significant. So this does have some relevance to the intensive care population. Before I go any further, for those of you who are not terribly familiar with oxygen and how it gets moved around the body, I'm just going to, and I'm sorry if you do know this already, just going to describe what we call the oxygen cascade. And that is how oxygen gets from the air to the business end of the body, which is the cell where it's used, basically. So first of all, down the trachea, which is a windpipe, and down to the bottoms of the lungs. And there's little air sacs here. And what happens on these air sacs is that oxygen crosses the, the wall of the air sac and ends up in your blood vessels. And when the oxygen's in your blood, it's actually carried by the red blood cells, or corpuscles, red blood cells. And there's a molecule inside red blood cells you may have heard of, haemoglobin, and that's really where most of the oxygen is carried. Okay? So oxygen across the lungs, into the blood, carried by haemoglobin. And then it goes through the blood vessels until it gets to the business end of the circulation. This is the microcirculation. And from here, these little black bits here are red blood cells whizzing through the microcirculation. Oxygen moves out, diffuses into the tissues, to the cell, and the business machine end of the cell is the mitochondria. And this is actually where you burn your oxygen, and oxygen is essential for life because you burn fuel using oxygen to produce energy. So the energy you use for absolutely everything, for running about, um, for growing, is all used, requires oxygen, and happens in the mitochondrion. And so on this expedition, we were interested in looking at that cascade all the way from the outside down to mitochondrial function to try and tease out what it is that made some of our um, subjects perform well and others perform badly. Just to give you some sort of idea of the degree of hypoxia or low oxygen level I'm talking about, Mount Everest, the summit here, you've got about a third of the level of oxygen you do have sitting in this room today. And Everest Base Camp, where all of our general public volunteers went to, about 50%. So quite a significant degree of hypoxia. If I took you right now and transported you to the summit of Everest, which is about, for those of you who are not sure in metres, about 8,800 metres, there's this lovely line here which is called the loss of consciousness line. So time to loss of consciousness. So you'd be unconscious in about two minutes and dead very soon thereafter. Okay? And interestingly, even at the height of, sort of European ski resorts, you get blurred night vision, which is clearly why you have trouble getting back to your room at about 10 o'clock at night sometimes. Okay? But obviously something happens if you expose yourself slowly, because we all know that some people do manage to get to the summit of Everest, and some even manage it without oxygen. So what is it that's happening in your body that allows you to adapt to this degree of hypoxia? Well, the story, uh, the long-held physiological story that we tend to learn and, and, and certainly is, is still in most of the textbooks, and is not incorrect because all these things do happen, um, is that what you tend to do is adapt your body in, in a multitude of ways to deliver more oxygen down to those cells. So that's either by making your heart beat faster, so you get more of those red cells whizzing round at any one time, by breathing harder, so you get more oxygen across into the from the lung into the blood, by increasing the number of red cells you have or by increasing the number of blood vessels to your tissues, all of which would end up with more oxygen getting down to the cells. 
So, if that were the whole story, you'd clearly expect the elite high-altitude mountaineers to be brilliant oxygen delivery machines. They'd have lungs that breathe particularly hard to get lots of oxygen across. They'd have huge numbers of red blood cells. They'd have lots of mitochondria to use the oxygen. And they'd be very good oxygen delivery machines, so they'd have a very high maximum exercise capacity using oxygen. Okay, so this is Reinhold Mesner and Peter Habler. And I don't know if you know these two gentlemen, they're probably the best... Uh, Caucasian mountaineers, that have, as in low-altitude natives, that have ever existed. Mesner was the first gentleman to climb all the 8,000-metre peaks without oxygen. And these were the first two to climb Everest without oxygen in the, in the 70s. So anyway, they've been pretty much poked and prodded and tested. And the bottom line is this. Surprisingly enough, they don't have any of the characteristics I just described. They're not particularly good oxygen deliverers. But they are exceptional performers at altitude, undoubtedly. So there's clearly something else going on. They have normal levels of exercise capacity. If we go back just to look at these little graphs here, this is the high-altitude climbers. This is some Sherpas. And this is looking at their ability to deliver oxygen. And this here is just Swiss couch potatoes. So really, they're not very different. This is looking at their mitochondrial content in their muscle and the number of blood vessels in their muscle. So really, as I said, we're not really quite clear what it is that makes a high-altitude or... You could say a high altitude, but I say high altitude, I mean a, a hypoxic performer, a good performer. So when you think about adapting to low levels of oxygen, first of all, you've got the supply end of the, the, the equation that we've been talking about. And we do know that you do change your breathing in and change the number of red cells you have to try and improve the delivery of oxygen, but that's not the whole story. And it probably is that not only do you adjust your supply, but you also adjust your demand. And if you think about it, that makes sense. So like a fuel-efficient car you try and tune your cells up to essentially use less petrol to get the same amount of workout. And in this case, we're talking about using less oxygen. Here's where this concept of metabolic efficiency comes in. And what we're saying here, and it's one of our main hypotheses with this, with this trip, was that actually it's changes in how efficiently you use oxygen that may be at the bottom of your performance in, in hypoxia, not just how much oxygen you can deliver to the cells. And this chap here is a Sherpa on the summit, may have done so much better than one of my colleagues here who we had to evacuate from 4,000 metres, and he said I could use this picture, <laughs> because he may be more efficient at using oxygen than poor old David. And it may be that those patients that tolerate hypoxia well may in some way be able to use oxygen more efficiently. And in the long term, and this is clearly not you know, the data I'm going to be able to tell you today, what we hope is that what we learn from this expedition can be translated back to help patients at the bedside. So our aims really were to look at the physiological changes that underlie our adaptation to hypoxia, to try and identify the limits of hypoxic adaptation, and particularly, the key was to try and look at good and poor performers, and then to look at their genetic, the genetic factors that underlie this. So in order to do this, we needed a large group of individuals. From the, that's the first point, which is key. And we also needed to expose them to hypoxia in, in a standard way. So it's like a dose response of a drug. It's like a drug study, but we were just giving them less and less oxygen. Because one of the problems with most altitude studies previously is there's a, they're on about five people, they're usually elite climbers, who funnily enough are very well adapted and are all good adapters because if you go there once and you feel terrible, I tell you, you tend not to go back because it's very unpleasant. David is not keen to go back again, mm -hmm. not surprisingly. So we needed a large group of individuals and we wanted at least a partly a group of them never to have been exposed to altitude before so they're not highly selected. And the standardised exposure is very important because if you let some people go much faster or expose themselves to more hypoxia, clearly they're, they're going to adapt in a different way. And what we wanted to get was a group of people and, and expose them in exactly the same way, all of them, and see how they all adapted. So the people that did really badly were actually very important on our trip, and we kept telling our trekkers this. <laughs> <laughs> so well, how many people did we take, and what did we do? Um, this, is, this is the subjects we took off to Everest. So the trekkers, we call these, are the general public volunteers, 198. And they volunteered to take three weeks off work, so they clearly weren't randomly selected, but we didn't think we could randomly walk into the street and find 198 people that might want to go to Everest Base Camp. And they also paid to go. In fact, they paid to be tortured by us, which was very kind of them. So they helped contribute to us being able to carry out the research. And then there was an investigator team of 24, of, and there was only some of the investigators, those of us who were at base camp or climbing, of whom nine stayed at Everest Base Camp for the whole three months and uh, ran the lab there. And 15 of us went higher on the mountain. Ten of those were summit climbers and five of us to carry out research and also to carry out rescues, which I'll mention a little bit about later. But not surprisingly, if you turn up with 60 doctors to Everest, 
you get involved in a lot of rescues because people clearly ask for your help. Now, don't worry too much about the detail of this, but this is really just to give you a feel for the breadth of the studies that we carried out. And I'm not going to go through all of these in any detail at all, but it, I think it gives you some idea why I can't give you all the answers today. But the Trekkers had all of these studies, all of them, and then the investigators had everything that the Trekkers had, plus a few more nasty things. So although we made the Trekkers get on exercise bicycles a lot, which wasn't terribly popular, particularly by the time you got to Everest Base Camp, it wasn't as bad as it was for me and my colleagues who had to have a muscle biopsy just after we'd been on the exercise bike. And also had to have a little tube in our artery to measure the amount of oxygen being pumped out by our heart. It was a massive logistical challenge, as you can probably imagine. This is Kathmandu, um, soon after arriving. This, <laughs> all these barrels here are actually just the barrels for one of the five laboratories we ran. This is the Everest Space Camp. So it was all colour-coded. Green means Kathmandu, white means Everest Space Camp. And these were just the gas cylinders to calibrate our various bits of equipment. And this was all laboratory equipment. Um, we took over 26 tonnes of equipment with us. And providing power for all this equipment was quite a challenge too, and Honda kindly sponsored us, but we had over 26 generators that we took up to be able to um, fuel the various bits of equipment we took. And not only was it a problem, well, a challenge when we went to Nepal in 2007, but actually for the two and a half years before we went, we spent a huge amount of time trialling both the equipment and the people that were going to go. Because the last thing we wanted to do was raise a lot of money, go there and then have the machines fail. So I spent a lot of time in this freezer van, which a meat company kindly led us outside the laboratory in London, doing things at minus 20 degrees just to make sure everything worked. And in this very highly technical um, altitude chamber in a farmyard in Somerset, making sure that uh, all the equipment worked at altitude. So we spent a long time validating things. We really didn't want to come back, and then people questioned the validity of our results on the basis that the machines hadn't been calibrated to work under those conditions. And not only that, as I said, we had to test out the people because as I mentioned to you the only thing that predicts how you're going to do is how you did last time so we needed to take some people high and most of, all of those people on the, the climbing team were established climbers but most people don't tend to go above 8,000 metres terribly frequently. We decided that anyone that was going to be on the summit team had to have previously been above 8,000 metres without being, having any illness because they had a much higher chance of doing well on Everest. So this was Choi Oyu. We went to Choi Oyu twice in the, the autumn of 2005 and 2006 um, to, as I say, to test out equipment, protocols and people, which is probably one of the reasons why actually on the expedition itself we had very little trouble with failure of kit and failure of people <laughs> high on the mountain. Not predictable failure anyway. So this is where we went um, in the Kumbu in the pool. Lukla is where most, well you can walk to Lukla, but most people cheat and fly from Kathmandu, it's about an hour's flight. And this is the Kumbu Valley here, which goes up towards Everest Base Camp. So this is the classic Everest Base Camp trek. The blue little places are where we spent the night, the red places where we had laboratories, and we had a laboratory in Kathmandu, which was the first place people were tested. It's quite an exciting landing. This is the um, landing strip. It's about 300 metres long. There's sort of a cliff at that end, and there's a wall at this end. Most of the trekkers thought this was the most frightening bit of the entire trip. And these are the laboratories. This was in Kathmandu. Um, here we were in a in sort of pretty comfortable building, actually, although the electricity supply wasn't very reliable, so we still use our generators. This is in Nampshi Bazaar, just by this crashed helicopter, which is always a bit worrying, but this is the lodge where we set up the laboratory for three months. Ferrochaise is about 4,000 metres, and just going up the, the Kumbu Valley there, and Everest is up towards, you can't actually see Everest, but it's behind this corner up here. And this was our laboratory there, and this is at Everest Base Camp. So... This is our view every morning at Everest Base Camp. This is the Kumbu Icefall. And when you know you've got to climb up it, it's quite an intimidating sight every morning when you get up. This was our medical tent, um, which we made good use of. And we did have to evacuate several people from base camp by helicopter. And this here was our laboratory tents. And inside the laboratory tent, as you can see, quite an extensive set of equipment. This is very similar to an exercise laboratory at sea level. These are the exercise bikes everybody got on. This little mask here is measuring the oxygen people are breathing in and out and allows us to see how much they're using. And again, equipment that is very familiar if you work in an intensive care unit. There's an arterial blood gas machine. This is a machine that on a beat-by-beat -beat basis was measuring how much oxygen our hearts, was pump our hearts were pumping out and uh, what the flow of blood out of the heart was. And this is a little line, as I mentioned to you previously, that's in an artery. There's a tube going into our nose, into our stomach to measure the oxygenation of the gut as well which was voted the least popular experiment. So for those of us who went up onto the mountain, this is a climbing team and some of our Sherpa team. We went above Everest Base Camp 
And then up here, so this is the south side route of Everest, which is a route we were, uh, we were going from the Nepal side. Everest Base Camp down here. Camp 1 at the top of the Akumbu Icefall is about 6,000 metres, and we only stayed there overnight. Camp 2, we had a permanent laboratory, tented laboratory you could stand up in. Camp 3, again, just an overnight stop. Camp 4, which is the south Col, just below 8,000 metres. Uh, we believe we set up the highest laboratory that's ever been uh, set up previously, or permanent laboratory for a couple of days up there. And then in the end, we were hoping to take some blood samples actually on the summit itself. But in the end, our highest lab ended up being 8,400 metres just below the summit because it was... Uh, bit chilly. So this is a, this is a Kumbu ice fall that you hear a lot about and it's a pretty unpleasant place to be honest. There's me going across this B&Q ladder carried, tied up by pieces of string and if you spend a lot of time thinking about the physics of what happens when you fall off because you're clipped to this other piece of string here that's not very strong by two pieces of, well, two ice screws at either end and, and as, as the day goes on the, the, melt, the ice is melting and it's getting warmer. It all doesn't bear thinking about too much. I didn't really enjoy these ladders very much. Some people rather enjoyed them and kept taking pictures down between their feet, but that wasn't my, my thing. The problem is that you have to look at your feet, because if you don't, then you tend to trip over the rungs. But if you look at your feet, that's the view you get faced with, which is not entirely pleasant. I think anywhere but it being on Everest, no one would ever think of climbing such a ridiculous thing, because it's basically a moving sea of ice. Um, and it's, the problems you have in the ice fall are usually, it's not that it's technically difficult, but it moves. Um, and so every time we went through the ice fall, you know, large chunks, and the route move and it, and it move or change from when we were last there, um, which is uh, quite worrying at times. So we used to get, the, the, the best thing to do is go through as quickly as you can and to go through the early, as early as you can in the morning so that uh, the anchors are relatively firm and there's less movement. So we'd get up at three in the morning and try to get up. And by the end we could get up in about three hours or so at the very beginning of the trip when we were less well acclimatised. It took us six or seven less pleasant. So this is Camp 2, the Western Coombe. What you can see here is the Lotsey face going up here. Just around this corner here is the South Coal. This is part of the West Ridge of Everest going up the summits up there. So this was our laboratory there. Inside this laboratory, that's me having an arterial gas taken from my groin, so I'm about to have a needle stuck in my femoral artery. And here again, we've got the full exercise testing kit. And for those of you familiar with these numbers, this is a resting oxygen saturation before we started the exercise test. You'd expect that to be 100% at sea level. 60% you'd be on a ventilator in intensive care and we'd be worried about your survival. So they're quite exciting numbers. That's why I took a picture of it. <laughs> um, this was at the South Coal, so again just 8,000 metres and we had our laboratory in this tent here. As you can see we had some solar panels there and a lot of batteries um, so that we could run this computer and again this is the highest exercise test that's ever been performed. Uh, We've finally beaten John West's world record that's been there for about 30 years, so we're pleased about that. But um, actually the hardest thing to achieve with this was actually getting the computer screen to work. Because there's a lot of problems with um, spinning hard drives at altitude, because particularly the precision ones, um, as you change the altitude, you change the pressure, and you change the, change the volume inside the drive. And what happens is that the uh, computer can no longer locate anything on the disk, and you get the, the bad blue screen, which is very depressing when you've managed to lug the kit all the way to 8,000 metres. So we spent a lot of money buying solid state, well borrowing actually, we didn't, we didn't spend the money, we borrowed some very expensive solid state hard drives which all died at about 7,000 metres and eventually we found a guy who um, <coughs> makes high altitude balloons and uh, he thought that 8,000 metres wasn't particularly high but anyway he assured us that he could run Windows off a compact flash card, one gigabyte. I said this to my colleague, I said, Denny, you've clearly got the wrong end of the stick, that's ridiculous. And I said, well you go and see him, you're the computer person, I don't really understand. And indeed, we did, in fact, run Windows off a one gigabyte compact flashcard. Don't ask me how. With a hundred pounds IBM computer off eBay. So that was a bit of a result, and it worked. So we went on and got up to the summit. But this is, as I said, the balcony at 8,400 metres, which is the highest point at which we did any measurements in the end. I'll come back to that a bit later in more detail. So I think I've given you some idea of what we were actually trying to do. Um, I think it's quite important to point out before I start giving any of the results that although... In some ways, uh, people get very excited about the science we did high on the mountain because it's quite sexy being very high up in measurements and, and it's the highest measurements ever been made. But actually, from a scientific viewpoint, the trekking group were much more powerful because there's more of them and they're the group that hadn't previously been selected to be good altitude performers. So actually, their data is hugely important in terms of translation to the critical care environment. Okay? And... Uh, as yet, we're still in the early days of analysing all that. There's been quite a few papers published already, but most of that has been on the smaller group for the simple reason that it's easier to analyse uh, 15 people as opposed to 220 people that did everything five times. 
So this is the exercise, but my particular research interest, there may be a bit of a bias here, it was the exercise data and exercise testing and exercise capacity and efficiency of exercise at altitude. So what we were trying to do was to see what happened with your ability to exercise and to basically see how efficient your muscles were at altitude. Just to give you a bit of a feel for our group, this is the, the exercise, um, which is why there's 190 rather than 198, not everybody was in this study, but it's about 60% male and... Um, <coughs> and what else can I say from there? Mean age of 44. A lot of people said, oh, there's nothing like patients. They're all terribly young and fit. And indeed, clearly, these, we're not saying these people are patients. But um, actually, we had quite a, a broad age range, as you can see, 18 to 73. We had four or five trekkers in their 70s who all managed to make it to base camp. And in fact, 96% of our trekkers got to Everest Base Camp, which is an incredible success rate and testament to their dedication to the cause. And then when they got there, they had to write a song and sing it to us. So that was, I think, Group H. They all came, they didn't come all as one big group. It would have been a bit of a nightmare having 200 people at once. They came in groups of a maximum of 16 every Wednesday and every Saturday for three months. They left London. So we tested them all sort of serially. Okay, so the first bit of graph, it all looks a bit um, exciting. The first thing, to just look at the red bars. Don't worry about the others. This is altitude starting at sea level. We tested everyone at sea level and then at increasing altitude, which means increasing hypoxia. And what this red level is, is the amount of oxygen in your blood because of the fact that you're exposed to hypoxia. So you can see that at sea level you start off near 200, and by the time you get to Everest Base Camp, things aren't looking so good if you're a trekker. You've dropped down to about 160. Yeah, there. So by the time they got to Everest Base Camp, although they'd had nearly two weeks to acclimatise, they hadn't completely acclimatised, and the oxygen content of their blood was still low. So what effect did this have on their ability to do work, to exercise? Maximum oxygen consumption is basically a measure that tells you about your exercise, maximum ability to work hard. So what you can see is that in London, the, the average was around about three litres. By the time you got to Everest Base Camp, you're down under two litres, which is a 35.5% fall. So try and remember that number if you can, about 35%. So basically this means by the time you get to Everest Base Camp, you can only do about two-thirds of what you can do at sea level. So when you try and do your shoes up and get dressed in the morning, you have to have a rest afterwards because you're very breathless. It's quite unpleasant. It doesn't go away. So what about us? This is the investigator group, clearly the elite athletes. Um, we took longer to get there because we were setting up laboratories. So if you look at this again, look at the red bars again. What you see is we started off about the same as the trekkers at 200, but by the time we got to Everest Base Camp, we'd actually ended up with more oxygen in our blood than we started. Because of all those things I told you about, breathing harder, getting more red blood cells. And by the end of the expedition, when we'd been there for, by th for three months, we got done even better. So we had more than we had at sea level, significantly more. So surely we should be performing extremely well if oxygen content was what it's all about. But then look at this graph, okay? So this is, again, the maximum oxygen consumption. And what do you see here? Everest Base Camp, what was it before? 35.4, so 34.7% reduction. So despite the fact that we'd normalised the amount of oxygen we had in our blood, we still couldn't do very much. And in fact, we were doing no better than the trekkers. So clearly, it's, there is some problem between the amount of oxygen in your blood and what's happening in your cells. Okay? And just increasing your oxygen content by increasing your breathing or the number of red blood cells doesn't solve the problem. Now, you don't have to be a scientist to say, look, to say it looks like someone's basically fired a shotgun at that screen. Okay? And what this is basically saying to you is that if you look at how badly you do at exercise versus your age, there's absolutely no relationship. So if you're old, you do no worse than people that are young. And interestingly, there's not much of a relationship here, but if there is a relationship, you could say that there's a hill going up in that direction. Yeah? And what that means is that if you were better at exercising at sea level, so you're a fitter person, you can think of this as fitness in this way, against debilitation when you go to altitude, the fitter you are, the more debilitated you get, which is what you may hear people talking about as well. Okay? And this is the first time that there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence, people saying young fit people tend to do badly, older people tend to do well. I don't know if you saw recently that um, Kilimanjaro charity climb, but one of the guys who was quite overweight and not very fit at all was absolutely fine, and a couple of people who have been training really hard were doing terribly, and that's completely typical. You often find it's very unpredictable. Some of the really, really fit types at sea level do badly. And in fact, what we demonstrated quite clearly was that actually those people that started off very fit actually decremented or got worse than those that didn't. So that's a good reason not to do any training before you go. Which is <laughs> <laughs> obviously an approach I took. So here we are. This is um, our world record 
uh, exercise test at 8,000 metres. This is Sandeep Dillon. It's the second time that he got to the summit of Everest. A bit mad to go back twice, but... Don't worry too much about the detail of this, but this is what you get from an exercise test. It's called a 12-panel plot, and I, I like looking at them. But the interesting bit is up here. And this you can think of about what's going on in your heart. And what this demonstrates to you is at the end of the exercise test at this sort of altitude, your heart is really struggling, which is something that hasn't been shown before. So that's a unique data, and that's very interesting, because it had been generally believed that actually your heart function, as in its contractile muscle activity, was normal at extreme altitude from the studies that have been done in chambers previously. But this really clearly demonstrates, and this was consistent across the five people that we did this test on at this altitude, that there's actually a problem with your heart function. Which brings me to some other data that we carried out. In fact, with some of um, your co the colleagues, our colleagues here at the Oxford Radcliffe looking at their um, magnetic resonance scanning. And um, this is a very clever technique which essentially allows you to look at how the cells in the heart are functioning and how they're using oxygen and how well the heart is contracting. Again, don't worry too much about the detail, but what you can see here is pre-trek, post-trek, six-month follow-up. So you can think about this as heart function. So we start off quite good, things go quite badly downhill after the trek, and it takes about six months to recover. So that's quite interesting. This was just the trekkers. These are people who had only been to, to 5,000 metres for two weeks. We didn't actually have... Because it took us such a long time to come down, because we carried a lot of equipment with us, so those of us who were there for several months... Um, probably fortunately didn't do this test. I wouldn't really want to know that my heart wasn't working um, terribly well when I got back. It took a long time to, to um, recover. This is very interesting data because it's not... It's, it's a model that's similar. Some, these, these numbers are similar to what you would expect to see in early heart failure. So patients who have early heart failure would have ratios of function of their heart muscle looking a bit like this. And this is a reversible model, which is extremely unusual. There's lots of people can get heart failure, but unfortunately we can't reverse heart failure. We can treat the symptoms. So um, this is something we've been looking at again. We sent a lot, another group of trekkers, another 50 people went this spring to look more closely at this in a bigger number of individuals and to see if we could intervene and change this pattern. So the next thing is looking at the microcirculation. So after the blood has left the big vessels, what's happening in the small vessels in the tissue? I'll go back to that. Let's do that again. Okay, on the left here, this is a normal microcirculation. There are little dark dots are the red blood cells and the gaps between them are caused by white blood cells whizzing through. And this is what you'd expect the microcirculation to look at. As you can see, everything whizzes around. And again, you don't have to be an expert to notice, this is at 6,400 metres, that these red cells are not moving nearly as fast. Okay? And it's the first time this has been looked, the, the microcirculation has been looked at at altitude. It actually wasn't exactly what we were expecting initially. We thought maybe it would be Incre the speed of it would be increased, actually, to try and improve delivery to the tissues. But actually what you see is a, uh, a picture that looks, again, a bit like some of the pictures you can see, sluggish flow um, with cardiac dysfunction. So very, very fast there. And things are going very slowly there. Although, again, this may, in fact, be an adaptation, because if these red cells are going very slowly but not carrying much oxygen, it gives them time to offload that oxygen to the tissues. And there's us at Camp 2. I like this slide, because this is, this is um, at Everest Base Camp, and here's, I'm taking a muscle biopsy here. I'm an anaesthetist as well as a critical care physician. This is a surgeon, so it's sort of revenge. Usually I have to sit at the head end and watch him cutting things, but anyway, he's clearly looking a bit worried that I've been let loose on his leg. And what I'm doing here is taking a small sample of his muscle. And what we wanted to do here was we've measured with the exercise testing how much oxygen you're able to use and how much work you're able to do. What I wanted to do was look at the cells and look at those little things, little firehouses, the mitochondria, and see what was happening, and if they were changing the way they functioned, so that it would allow us to perform better. This data is still... Um, I'm still in the process of analysing a lot of this, and we've, I've actually, we've collaborated with quite a few groups from around the world. This is uh, an Italian group in Milan, and they're looking at something called the proteome. So what that means is we all have genes in our cells. Genes make proteins that have functions. Okay? And if we want to find out what's making us perform well at altitude, it's quite a good idea to see which genes are switched on. And if a gene switched on, then the protein it makes is going to be increased in quantity. And proteomics essentially looks for the amount of any protein that you have in a cell. So you measure it at sea level, all the proteins you have in the cell, and then you go to Everest, expose yourself, and then see what changes. And what we found is, from these muscle biopsies to date, there's 23 common proteins in every single person. So that's in uh, 20 people tested on three occasions, where all of them were upregulated in all of them. So those are clearly genes that are being switched on by the exposure to hypoxia. 
or switched off. So upregulated and 16 were downregulated because both are important, okay, in terms of trying to identify what it is that's going on in, in the tissue cell. I'm, I'm not going to, largely because it has, hasn't even been published yet, uh, I can't tell you all the details of that, but that's quite exciting data. And we've also looked at some of the mitochondrial function and we've clearly shown that there's a variability in how efficient your mitochondria are at altitude and this may well translate to changes in performance, which is a very exciting finding, but we'll wait to see... Um, the results of that, which will be coming soon. So as I say, these are some of the summit team on the summit, and they were planning, as I said, to take a blood gas at this point, but it was really quite windy on the, on the summit day, and uh, they were a bit concerned about exposing their groin, so everyone thought that it was a sensible idea to come down a little bit, as I said, to the balcony. They spent a long time before we went deciding where to take bl arterial blood from, and well, at first we thought the wrist was much safer than the leg, because clearly you need the leg to get down, probably more than you need your arm, but actually your vessels tend to go into spasm when you take a glove off because it's too cold. So we gave up on that approach, having failed quite a few times in the Alps. So we went, we put up this little tent here, and inside the tent, um, some of my colleagues were taking blood from each other. And this is a Sherpa called Passang, who slightly embarrassingly ran from this point. He, they ra he radioed me to say he was coming. I was at Camp 2 ready to analyse these samples because I was on the climbing team, I wasn't on the summit team. And uh, I thought, well, I've got ages, I'll, I'll get on with something else. And then he turned up two, two hours later, having had a cup of tea at the South Coal, it took our guys two days to come back down. So anyway, their performance is, a, is another whole story, which is something that would be interesting to look at. So here's me at Camp 2 with an arterial blood gas machine analysing these samples. Again, this probably isn't that breathtaking if you're not used to looking at blood gas numbers, but this number here is a level of oxygen in their blood, and I've never seen a patient alive with this level of oxygen in their blood. Okay? N never. And in fact, we've gone through the entire li mammalian literature, and there's no... Apart from, um, apart from hibernating animals, there's no mammal that ha and fetuses that has an oxygen level that low. Okay? So the, and these guys were performing well. I was speaking on the radio. This guy, particularly at two and a half, is really quite spectacular. So as I say, if you saw this on a patient, you really wouldn't expect them to be um, living. And it's one of the really interesting concepts. It seems that around about two to three kilopascals, if you do look, which is the level that we found in our climbers, if you look in the literature, that is about the lowest you see. And in fact, in the fetus, inside, inside, um, when, when they're still inside the womb, what we find is if their levels of oxygen drop below about this, they stop growing. And that's when you get uh, intrauterine growth retardation, which is a massive problem, which suggests that the child is not going to do well, and sometimes you have to deliver them early because of this. So it may be that this actually represents some sort of flaw uh, of about as low as you can go. Everest climb, and the only other place you see it is, interestingly, diving seals, just about when they come back to the surface, when they've decided that they really do need to breathe after diving around for 20 metres, they have a, a, an oxygen level about the same, the same, in the same region. So, in fact, there was a, a John Barcroft in the 1800s said that being a climber on Everest was like being a fetus in the womb, and as it turned out, he was pretty much on the nose. So, the last thing I was just going to mention very briefly was some of the rescues we got involved in, and people always uh, often ask uh, about this, particularly because I, the year before, I think it was the year before we went, on the north side there was quite a, there was quite a loss of publicity after, I don't know if you remember this day, a, a chap was left and passed by an entire team of, team of climbers on their way to the summit, which I really don't think is a, a particularly well, an ethical thing to do, and left to die, and he was left, because uh, they, th well, they, they established, don't really know how, that he wasn't going to make it, so they carried on on their route to the summit, and when they came back down, six or seven hours later, he was in fact still alive, but then they decided he was definitely going to die, and they left him again, and they went past him, and he did indeed die after all of that. And, you know, it's a really, um, it's a fraught sort of area, this whole business about rescuing, and whether you should or shouldn't, um, or not shouldn't, but, you know, whether it's acceptable to walk past people, really. I mean, my, our, our personal, our opinion and my opinion as a doctor is, that is absolutely not. There's a difference. If you're on the way back from the summit and you're on your own and you may put your life at risk by trying to help something, that's completely different. But I think there's absolutely no excuse for leaving somebody on your way up. Um, and the other thing to say is you cannot tell from looking at somebody and eyeballing them, and I'm a, I'm a physician and I look after critically ill patients a lot, whether they're going to make it. Largely because if you're hypothermic, it's very difficult to assess you clinically. And people make recoveries. You know, you've heard of small children being under the ice for 20 minutes and they still end up with a normal neurological recovery after the event. The longest someone's been um, without cardiac output is about 40 minutes and survive when they're very, very cold. Um, so you can't tell. And this, this lady is, uh, was a Nepali lady who uh, very sadly was on a very low-budget Nepali expedition and essentially got... And she was... Uh, 
Alola Nepali, one thing that people often don't realize is that the Sherpas, who are in fact a genetic subgroup, they're actually Tibetans and they've come over the Tibetan Pass and they work and they live in highland Nepal and they are genetically adapted to high altitude and have been living at high altitude for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. But the rest of the Nepalis, all of the Western Nepalis, are actually of Indian genetic stock and have no adaptation to high altitude. So there's no reason why they should adapt any better than you or I. So this was a lowland Western Nepali lady who was essentially abandoned um, at the South Coal by her team, and then she decided to go up anyway, even though she wasn't feeling particularly well, with one cylinder of oxygen, which is really a very bad idea. It's just enough to get you up, and then you run out and get into trouble. And um, she was found at 8,000... 500 metres, so higher than this chap on the north side, completely unconscious, with a, so unrousable, and she'd had her gloves off, and in fact on this was the first summit day, um, our guys went up, and in fact it was very, she was extremely lucky because it was actually quite a warm day. And I think something else that's important to point out, there's the, the commercial guiding companies get a very bad name on Everest, quite often because of, I always forget which way it is, touching the void or the other one, no, into thin air. Because people have read that book and it, gives, it makes it all sound as though commercial groups are um, just out to make money and they're, they're not looking after people. But in fact, our experience on Everest were that the commercial groups that go every year, particularly the, the very well-known, um, there's a group of about four or five English and American and European groups that are actually extremely well-equipped. They've got a very good safety record. They take enough Sherpas, they take enough oxygen and their clients don't get into trouble. And the people that we came across that got into trouble were small private expeditions who didn't have enough equipment um, and didn't take enough Sherpas and didn't make very sensible decisions. And when we came to rescue people, and I got involved in at least six rescues on the mountain, um, the commercial groups all gave us oxygen, uh, Sherpas, because what you actually need to get people down is Sherpas to help carry people. And I think, you know, they should, people, you should bear that in mind. And really, people like the International Mountain Guides... Um, RH and uh, Jagged Globe um, actually do an amazing job there. And quite often it's actually small, small groups of people going who are unprepared, just like this lady here. And in fact, it, as I say, it was two guides from one of these commercial groups that found her, and then four of our Sherpas and four of their Sherpas and two of our doctors then proceeded to take her, drag her from the balcony all the way down the Lotsi face um, to Camp 2, where I was, and uh, she had cerebral edema, and we gave her a lot of dexamethasone, and she also had 10-digit frostbite, not surprisingly, since she'd had her hands out of her gloves. And she recovered very quickly with oxygen and uh, dexamethasone, which is quite common with this. Then we then got the, the trouble that we were stuck on the north side of the icefall and she couldn't walk. And she spent three days with me, actually, at Camp 2 whilst we were trying to organise a rescue. And, in fact, largely because her team said they'd come and rescue her and they were going to go back to base camp and send up their team the next morning, and they all ran off, and then they disappeared from base camp. So they just abandoned her entirely, having abandoned her high on the mountain as well. Which is a really pretty depressing thought. But actually, she did incredibly well. She had no insurance, which is also quite common, you find, with these groups of people. So when we got down to base camp, it was quite fortunate that we were actually, well, unfortunate, we were evacuating one of our own team at the time who'd um, had some symptoms of a stroke. And so she flew out in the helicopter that we... Uh, arranged back to Kathmandu. And this was actually her in Kathmandu a month or so later when we got back down. And in the end, she lost the end of one of her toes. And that was all. And in fact, she summited this year. <laughs> so she went back for another go. So there you go. So that's a happy ending of someone that was rescued from 8,000 metres and was completely unconscious. So, you know, I, and she gave it. It's very good luck, apparently, in Nepal to have honey. So we had to carry back this two-kilogram pot of honey, which is still living in our house three years on. We get it, we're getting through it slowly. And I think the last people I really want to mention is the Sherpas, uh, because these, these guys are the real heroes, as it says there. W without them, we would never have managed to do um, anywhere near the amount of science that we hoped to do. They're in a, we were very lucky that we had the same Sherpa group when we went to Choyoyu in Tibet, the other mountain I told you about. So we'd worked with them for three years and became good friends. And this is a family. There are five of the seven brothers here. Of the seven brothers, all seven have now summited Everest. This is Mingma, who was our climbing lead. This is his 13th summit. He's also summited K2 twice, which is much more, in climbing terms, um, a, much, a completely different challenge in terms of much harder. This is his younger brother, Pasang, who I said carried the blood gases. He's about the only Sherpa that also has a, a degree, and he's on his fifth summit. This is a, he's 18. It was his second summit already. Um, Tundu has done, I think, six. 
And Pema, who was the oldest brother, was slightly embarrassment of the seven brothers because he'd never summited, although he'd been on the West Ridge up to 8,600. Didn't quite get there. So this year they decided that he'd have to go up, so we treated him as a client and sent him up with another Sherpa, and he, in fact, summited for the first time, which he was very pleased about. But these guys were amazing. They did over 70 carries of equipment to the South Coal. So they went up and down the Lotsey phase 70 times, um, carting our exercise bike and the rest of our stuff. We managed to just about drag ourselves up the mountain. Uh, they dragged everything else up for us. People often ask, why we didn't, did we do any investigations on the Sherpas? No, we didn't um, on this trip for two reasons, really. Firstly, because in the first instance, we were interested in looking at lowlanders because those are who we are in critical care. And secondly, it's actually quite difficult ethically to get permission to research on these people for the reasons I said earlier about consent. It's difficult to know that they really understand what it is you're talking about doing to them, and it's quite difficult to get permission as well in Nepal to do that. Having said that, we plan to go back in 2012 to do some further studies. And having worked with these, this group for the whole of the last expedition, we feel that they probably do under, they are, understand enough, and we are planning to do some... They were very keen to have some tests done on them. They're very keen to get on the exercise bikes and prove themselves much better than us, which will probably be very embarrassing. So um, we hope next time to be doing some tests on them, which I think will be really interesting in itself, because it's a whole other question why... I mean, Pasang weighs 57 kilos, you know, much less than me, but he can carry, you know, 40 kilos. Well, I struggle to carry a 10-kilo rucksack, and he can go about four times as fast as me. So they're fantastic guys, and as I say, they, we owe them a massive vote of thanks. Um, and I think I'll stop there. The last thing is if you're interested in hearing more of the results, uh, this is quite... A, this will be a science-heavy uh, couple of days. Um, it's aimed at scientists, but um, it's an amazing international faculty with some of our collaborators and some of the... Doyens of altitude medicine, John West, ran, ran the first altitude big research expedition in the 60s and the American research expedition in the 80s. Um, it will be in London at the Royal Society of Medicine if you're interested. Have a look at our website. Thanks very much. Um, Denny's got to jump on a train back to Southampton fairly soon, but we've got about mm, maybe five minutes for any Have questions. Anyone has any burning questions? Yeah, hi. So how many of the extreme teams did actually make it to the top? We were eight, eight, um, there were ten summit climbers, and eight of the ten made it. Uh, one turned back on summit day. He wasn't feeling good. And one very unexpectedly got cerebral edema at Camp 3. Um, he had a viral infection just before we went up for the summit push. And if you look at the data, it's something we're quite interested in. There's a, there seems to be an interaction between having any sort of inflammation or illness and hypoxia. So... If you have a cold, you're much more likely to get altitude sickness. And I think really what probably happened to poor Patrick was that um, this viral infection predisposed him. Because he'd got to the summit of Choyoyi with absolutely no problem the year before. So, yeah, so eight of the ten. And then we put 18 Sherpas as well on the summit. And a couple of cameramen who were filming. Might have seen some of them. Hi. Um, hi. Why do um, people with uh, chronic respiratory conditions mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the two to two to three, yeah. Well, the one that the, the, the chronic lung disease people do tolerate relatively low levels of oxygen. So you're talking usually down to around six or seven on air. And in fact, the only group that tend to tolerate long, lower than that seem to be uh, congenital heart disease patients. Now these, as I said, mentioned before, the, the most hypoxic you ever are in your life is when you're in, in the uterus still. And one of the thoughts about uh, what happens when you expose yourself to this degree of hypoxia is that you're actually switching a, a gene pattern that was on and expressed when you were a fetus. And you may be reverting back to that sort of level, that, those sort of ge that gene expression. Um, so congenital heart disease people do seem to manage to run at about five to six. Uh, chronic respiratory patients seem to not get much below six to seven. Why that, exactly why that is, I can't, we don't really know, but they don't survive that long. They often get infection on top of, on top of that problem. But um, as I say, we don't see the, those in patients that are alive. And remember that the, these guys had several months to get used to it. You'd think they, they have months and years, so they should tolerate it better. But there's more and more data with the chronic respiratory patients, particularly the COPD patients, suggesting they've actually got a mitochondrial problem using oxygen in the cells, as well as they're being actually... Um, so they may actually, as a result of detraining, lose their mitochondria 
which may make things more difficult for them. But I don't think we absolutely know the answer to that. Hi. Hi, sorry, I hope it's not too off-tangent. You mentioned no? uh, dexamethasone. Yes. Uh, how effective is that? Was that across the, rate, the range of people? Did it vary much? Or we didn't, well, we, because we were trying to look at um, adaptation and not illness on this trip, we didn't give, give anybody any prophylactic medication at all. Okay? Um, so we, and clearly, if people became unwell, we treated it. Uh, and dexamethasone is actually not the first-line treatment for acute mountain sickness, but actually very effective. So we tend to use acetazolamide uh, as a first-line because it's, has a, it has a lesser side-effect profile, largely. But dexamethasone is actually... If you had to take one drug to altitude, take dexamethasone. If you had nothing else to take with you, and take some that you can give as an injection, learn how to give an injection. Because that's the one thing. That it will treat acute mountain sickness, it will treat cerebral edema, and it will treat pulmonary edema, interestingly, which was a bit of a surprise finding about two years ago. It seems to be as effective as the drug we've been using for a long time that we thought we had a much better reason for why it worked, the other drug. But dexamethasone works for anything. And particularly, the problem is that once someone's become unconscious, they're clearly not going to take a tablet. So to have an, a little um, a syringe, a needle, a small vial that you can stick through someone's clothes. So all of our climbers had a tiny little medicine pack, and that just involved, that involved when they were on the summit, some strong opiate, so morphine and um, dexamethasone. That's all they took. You need to keep it somewhere so it doesn't freeze, though. Higher. Uh, just to clarify something, Danny, this uh, blood circulation going was much slower. Yes. Uh, from people on the summit there. Sure, yep. Yeah. Um, as the blood is thinking, I guess, or... Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it, we, we, the two sort of the two thoughts. First off, is it, is it going slowly because you're hypoxic, or is it because your blood's thicker because you've got so many cells? So if there's lots of cells, it's a bit more like trying to pump treacle than it is trying to pump, say, wine. Okay. But um, in fact, we looked at a measure of viscosity, so hematocrit, and tried to correlate the the, the the velocity of flow with that, and the two didn't correlate, which was interesting. And one of the other things we did on this trip was to give uh, individuals oxygen and see if this was reversed. So when they were at 8,000 metres, we gave them oxygen and see, to see if that flow acutely got better. And the answer is it doesn't. So we're not entirely sure what is predominantly causing that. And as I said, it may actually be an adaption as opposed to a maladaption because it allows a longer transit time for red cells in, in the capillaries. Which allow, when you've got... Um, which is important when you have lower levels of oxygen because it gives you a better diffusion gradient into the cells. So it's more likely to get out. Oh, yeah. Do you find out if we're DDG or IIG? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, no. It's <laughs> the answer to that. Um, one of the problems about it, if you, if you remember I showed you the general population, we had that nice balanced, what we call a balanced distribution, 50%, 25%, 25%. The bottom line is there must be some benefit for, in some way for being DD, or eventually, because of evolution, you'd all end up with IIs. Now, I have to say, most of the research so far is pretty much on the side of the IIs. You have less risk of early-onset ischemic heart disease, less risk of heart failure. You're a better endurance athlete. But the only good thing about being DD that's currently come out in the literature is you can lift weights better. So if you want to be a professional weightlifter, so basically explosive energy sports that are not aerobic but require a lot of anaerobic activity. Um, but there must be. It's just a matter of the fact that we haven't, we haven't identified what the, the benefit of DD is yet. Or you would expect that it wouldn't be such a balanced distribution. On top of that, from the point of view of genetics research, you only get ethics at the minute to look at genes if you don't tell people their own results. For two reasons, really. Um, first, because you know, it's still early days in genetics. And uh, the early researchers, people did tell each other. So, for example, they were looking at APOE, and, which one of the alleles for that, another gene, and heart uh, early onset heart disease, and people knew what their, their genotype was, and then subsequent to that it became clear that one particular genotype had a pretty much 100% risk of early onset Alzheimer's. Now, you don't really want to know that because there's nothing you can do about it. If it's something you can avoid or treat, you might want to know, but I wouldn't really want to know at 26, I'm pretty much definitely going to get Alzheimer's at 55. And the other reason is for insurance reasons. Um, at the moment, you know, insurance companies are not jumping on genetic testing, but uh, and, until... Uh, we know more about that. We, what we don't want to do is put people in a situation that they're going to have insurance loading against themselves later. So now the ethical basis of all genetic research is that you keep uh, you identifiers away from the, from the results and no one's allowed to know their, their results, so we don't even know our results. Some of our team who did it a few years ago do happen to know their results. That's very naughty.
but I wouldn't advise you to have it tested. How long did the trekking group take to get to base? 13 days. So basically, that what compared to most commercial treks, they had one extra day at about 3,000 meters and one extra day at 4,000 meters. It made a massive difference to the success rate. As I said, 96% of them got there. If you look at most commercial treks, you'd expect somewhere between about 70 and 75 to get there. There's big dropouts. They're giving them a bit more time. And the reason we did that, as I said, is we weren't looking, wanting to look at illness. We wanted to look at adaptation. It made a big difference. And in fact, we had a commercial um, company doing the logistics of the treks up and down, because clearly we didn't want to do that. And they actually were thinking of adding on a day or two to their commercial trips to just improve the success rate. But it's difficult because people will say, well, that company goes, does it in a shorter time, I need less time off work. The thing to remember is you don't enjoy it as much if you're not feeling terribly well. The more acclimatised you are, the whole thing is much more pleasant. It's not very fun having a headache most of the time and feeling... You basically feel like you have a hangover and you can't breathe. It's not a good combination. What's the solution for that? And if you feel like that, is it just... Stop. <coughs> Um, first of all, just stop. You don't necessarily have to go lower, but if you don't get better by the next... So it's the end of the day, as it usually happens. You've been walking all day, you get somewhere, you're okay when you arrive there, and about four hours later you get a whacking headache and you start to feel rough. The, the thing you should do at that point is definitely not go up the next day. Okay? And, th and this is one of the problems of being... That's why if you're on a commercial group, you're actually more likely to get ill than if you're on a group of your own, because you, can, you feel pressure to go at their pace. What I would advise is you wake up the next day and you do absolutely nothing. Um, take some paracetamol that evening, so just treatment for the symptoms at first, and what you'd expect was you'd be starting to feel better by the next day. If you're not starting to feel better, you may A, require some treatment, and B, you should start about heading, to think about heading down. The answer, the treatment of altitude illness is down, 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 really, but you can afford to stay for a bit and see if you're going to get better. Certainly if it's in the evening, you're going to put yourself at risk by trying to move around in the dark. Um, and as I said, acetazolamide or dexamethasone are the tablets of choice. Um, but, you know, really rest is, is number one. And it, it's desperately sad. People die still every year of acute mountain sickness. It's a, it's a very silly way to die. And that's people that just don't believe that they're personally ill. They can't really believe that they've got, it's going to be there. They're going to be getting worse and they carry on going up. And, and then you get cerebral edema. Once you've got cerebral edema, you, you only have eight to ten hours or so. And you, will, you will die. If you take dexamethasone, does that... Um uh, does that actually treat the illness or does it just cover the symptoms? Very good question. And the real answer is we don't know because we're, not quite, we're a bit confused by how it works. The thing about dexamethasone is it has lots of, lots of effects. And you can make a good story for it, acting on the mechanism. But amazingly enough, we're still not entirely clear of the exact mechanism of acute mountain sickness. So there, we use it to reduce cerebral edema if people have brain tumors at, at sea level. And it's still not entirely clear... Um, which of the many actions are the, are the, are, is the main one. And, and what you certainly shouldn't do is take tablets and then carry on going up. Okay? That's a bad thing to do, because then you've got to mask your symptoms. Okay? And we, we, I don't advise, people always ask about prophylactically taking acetazolamide. Um, so basically you know you're going to go to, and you're going to take them to prevent yourself getting acute mountain sickness. I wouldn't advise that. I, it's not something I, we ever do or I've ever done. Um, what I would say is go slowly enough to enjoy the trip. If for some reason you are forced to go and rescue something or go up very suddenly and you know you've got to, for some reason, make a massive altitude jump and you have no control over that situation, then sure, it would be sensible to take acetazolamide. But uh, m my feeling and my colleagues' feeling, uh, most of the people I know that are interested in altitude medicine, you know, you're much better off just going slowly enough that you don't need to take it. And I think it's particularly hard for young, fit people who go there and think they're going to have a great time and be good because they have a really hard time coming to terms with the fact that they're feeling terrible and all these other people are going faster than them. Uh, but it is better just to slow down. Is it too early to say how all this connects to clinical practice in hospitals? It's, it's quite early, to be honest. Um, there are some... I mean, there's... there's there is some interest already, and there has been for some time, about looking at whether... When we put people on ventilators, as I said, in intensive care, and we try very hard to keep oxygen levels near to normal. One of the things that this demonstrates is that if you're given enough time, you can actually tolerate much lower oxygen levels. And one of the areas of interest, not just sparked by this, but some other research too, is that maybe we may tolerate, we should not try so hard to ventilate. Because by using ventilators and puffing essentially very hard down into your lungs, you can actually cause damage. Uh, and one of, the, one of the studies which is actually now clinically trying to get funded by the Intensive Care Society is to look at 
what we call permissive hypoxemia, so letting patients have lower levels of oxygen and not trying to ventilate them too hard and seeing if that actually improves their outcome. So that's something that, you know, certainly this has given extra weight to, um, to that. But, you know, overall, we're, we're a, a way off yet. From, we're certainly looking at data from here. So now we're looking at the microcirculation in some of our septic patients, uh, driven by some of the studies that we've done. But we certainly don't have a, an absolute uh, answer to hypoxia or a treatment that we've, we've learned from this expedition that we're using in our patients as yet. I think it's a bit early. Okay, well, I think we're, 